0: All right, while everybody's finding their seat, just a reminder to pray for Camp Rete, which starts next, officially it starts next Sunday, but a lot of people will be traveling, including the group from Houston, starting at uh, about 6.30 a.m. on Saturday morning. So pray for the safe travel, also pray for spiritual readiness and preparedness for the people who will be there, and for uh, the teachers during the week, that uh, everything will go smoothly, and uh, then also, at the end of that week, when they come back on the they come back on the twenty first, so the next Saturday is July twentieth. We have our men's prayer breakfast at seven thirty a.m. And we always encourage men to bring your sons, your grandsons, so that they can uh, be around adult men who are focused on the Word and talking about about Scripture. Then vacation Bible school starts in two weeks, so we have a very busy schedule coming up. And please be in, prayer for that. be in prayer for that. We need some leaders, we need children, and we need people to register. And then the more information is up on the website, Miss Barb, on the Israel trip. Is that up there? Okay. Israel trip, the combined trip information is up on the website. The breakdown of the two individual tours, Greece and Israel, will be up within a day or two. So that is... Out there, so encouraging people uh, to go ahead and check out that information and sign up. So that's it for the announcements. Hope everything is going well for everybody. Seems like one of those weeks when uh, I keep hearing about people with one health problem or another, so we need to be in prayer for lots of different people. But primarily we just need to learn to trust the Lord. One of the things we should pray for, often what we pray for, is for people to get out from under their suffering. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that, that the idea there is not that you get out, get away from it, from your testing, but that you bear it Biblically, you endure it and you grow spiritually through through it. So that's how we should uh, be praying for people: is that they can learn the spiritual lessons that God is teaching them and learn to trust the God trust God more fully as they go through those tests, that they may be strengthened, encouraged, and uh, a testimony before the angels and before before men. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land, and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you, In God, I will praise His word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Sounds like somebody has a horn that is going off out there. As we prepare to study the Word this evening, we need to make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord. And that means that we need to examine ourselves to see if there is sin in the life that we need to. Uh, address through confession of sin. Scripture, scripture says that when we confess our sin, that is when we admit or acknowledge it to God the Father, then instantly we are forgiven of those sins and then cleansed from all unrighteousness. Cleansing in a, is a, refers to a spiritual state when we can have intimacy, rapport, a fellowship with God, that we can enjoy that relationship as we grow spiritually. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice that we can know you, that we can develop a relationship with you based upon your word and It is through your word that we we learn about you. It is through your word that we are strengthened spiritually. It is through your word that we are enlightened to reality, that we are enlightened about you, and that as the light of your word shines in our souls, then we are able to uh, see the errors of our thinking, the errors of our ways, and that we can then be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that you can use that to conform us to the image of Christ. And Father, we pray that as we study this evening, it won't be simply an academic exercise, but it will be an opportunity for us to understand some spiritual dynamics of how we are to trust you, how we are to pray to you, how we are to uh, grow spiritually, trusting in your word and your promises. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. And as we go forward, I'll remind you that one of the things that we have seen is that this is a very lengthy psalm. It's 52 verses. And in those verses, we see an approach, one of many that we find in the psalms, an approach to trusting God. It is based on a promise. The promise is the Davidic covenant, which we have studied in its context in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It is based on the character of God. That's what underlies this promise. A promise has no more value than the integrity or the character of the person who makes the promise and that is why it is so important in prayer that we take time to reflect upon the character of God reflect upon his essence reflect upon that which undergirds and is the foundation for his word and for his for his promise and it is God's integrity that we see that underlies his his promise it is his righteousness and his justice which is emphasized throughout this passage as well as his chesed which is translated sometimes as mercy, sometimes as loving kindness, other times it's got that idea of a steadfast loyal love. And whenever we read that word in the scripture and I understand that that's what it lies lies behind this, whenever you read through the Psalms, when you run across words like mercy, you run across words like loving kindness, Unless if you don't have a way to look it up and determine what the Hebrew is, it's more than likely chesed, and it refers to God's loyalty when we are not loyal. It refers to God's faithfulness to his promises, faithfulness to his word, faithfulness to his covenant. And so that word faithful is also used in parallelism. For example, when we look at the first verse, The psalmist writes, I will sing, that is an exercise of his vocal cords with his mouth. I will sing of the mercies, that's hesed, the mercies of the Lord forever. And then the second stanza is a parallel, it's synonymous parallelism. With my mouth, see, with my mouth is uh, parallel to I will sing. Uh, will I make known? So with my mouth, will I make known is all parallel to singing your faithfulness. That's parallel to chesed, God's loyal love uh, to all generations, literally from generation to generation. It's an idiom for uh, to all generations. That's accurately translated. And so this is the emphasis here that, that, that sets the tone for this entire psalm, that the emphasis is on god's faithfulness, and so that when we pray, when we come before the Lord in prayer, that is our orientation that's the point of contact with God is His word and his loyalty to His word when we confess sin, we admit or acknowledge our sin to him on the basis of what he has said in his word. We know what 1 John 1, 9 says, but that's only one of many passages that talk about cleansing. Uh, cleansing is the key idea there. Often there are people who say, oh, we don't need to confess. And they emphasize the word confess. But that's not the key word there. The key word is con- uh, Cleansing. And throughout scripture again and again and again there's this emphasis on cleansing in the Old Testament there was you brought a sacrifice every time you came to the temple there had to be a ritual cleansing to remind people that they were sinners and that sin needed to be dealt with ritually before they could ritually worship the Lord in terms of their individual spiritual life, if they were like David and they were out with the sheep, out in the pasture, and they were a good uh, day's hike from Jerusalem or several days' hike from Jerusalem, then they weren't going to run to the temple every time they needed to confess sin and sacrifice a lamb. That's what they would do the next time they went to the temple uh, ritually. So individually they would... They would confess sin, and on that act, then, they would be forgiven and cleansed, and then when they came to the temple, there would be a ritual sacrifice. So you had what I would call real cleansing and ritual cleansing, and all of that prefigures what happens in the New Testament. We, have, we don't have ritual cleansing anymore. We have positional cleansing, which took place at the cross, when our debt of sin was canceled. But each time we do sin, each time we violate God's word, God's standard, and God's character, then what happens is that we have to uh, confess that sin. And when we do, God is faithful and just. Notice the language there. Same language that we have here in Psalm 89, language related to God's faithfulness, that word emunah in the Hebrew that is used again and again, that it undergirds these promises. God's faithful, and He is just. His faithfulness is going to be related also to His righteousness, as we get further into into the passage. And so, this is all part of the inner workings, the interconnections, the interdependence of His various uh, attributes. And so, we see that it is that integrity of God, His character. ...that lies behind each and every promise. So when we pray, we shouldn't, and we all do it, we get into these, what I would call, sort of uh, ruts. We have little patterns to our prayers. We start off, we always say the same things, we use the same verbiage. We ought to stop sometimes and just think, well, I'm going to talk to God a little differently right now. He's probably a little tired of me always using the same formulaic phrases and just talk to him. And reading the Psalms is a good way to think through how to pray and to use the language of Scripture. It was interesting, the other night I was at an event and I sat next to a a lady who has her PhD in medieval art and uh, history and literature and we had a lovely conversation, and part of the conversation we were reflecting upon the fact that you can't have real conversations with too many people anymore. Number one, everybody gets so upset because if you don't agree exactly with them, then they uh, take offense, and so everybody backs into a corner and gets gets into an argument. Or you find that due to the deficiencies of our education system you can't have quality talks with people because they don't know what you're talking about anymore. And they don't have the education to back it up. And we had a lovely conversation. We were talking about John Milton, and we were talking about Chaucer. We were talking about Isaac Watts. And we got to talking about music and hymns. And as we did that, it led to the language of the King James Version. And I asked her, I said, well, are you familiar with Uh, Sir Lancelot Andrews. And she said, oh, wasn't he marvelous? And so we had a whole conversation on Sir Lancelot Andrews. And see, because of what you've learned in the last couple of years as we studied worship and talked about Sir Lancelot Andrews, see, you would have the basis for a conversation. You would know at least who was being discussed. And a lot of people have no idea who he was. He was the chief translator of the King James Bible. He was a, uh, a polyglot. He was uh, his, he mastered five or six languages before he was ten years old, including Biblical Hebrew and Greek and Latin, as well as uh, two or three languages that were spoken in Europe at that particular time. And he was just a genius in languages, and God used that. But he lived at a time when you didn't have the distractions we have today, the distractions of, of uh, Facebook and, and social media, the distractions of email and the internet, and looking at your cell phone every five to ten seconds to see if somebody has uh, responded to something that you, that you said, and are watching TV or movies or Netflix or whatever it may be. We have so many things that distract us, and all they had was the Bible. And they would read the Bible. And you think about the great words and these tremendous hymns that we sing that were written by the Wesleys, written by Isaac Watts, uh, written written by many of the other writers of these hymns, and you realize there's a richness in their soul that we don't see too much of today. And that is because we live in a very, very superficial time, we have a superficial education and think that we're brilliant because we have a math we have a bachelor's or master's degree and then we see get one of those emails you've gotten them and it has an 8th grade test from some school district in Kansas in this 1870s and you can't answer the first five questions so you give up because we don't have that kind of education you go back and you read some of the things that are written in the nineteenth century uh, by you, you read some of the things written by the founding fathers, and they didn't have more than some of them didn 't have more than an eighth or ninth grade education but on the basis of that eighth or ninth grade education, they were able to write things and do things and say things in such a way that that we can 't even come close to duplicating. They were truly educated but they spent time to really meditate on what they learned. And this really applies to Scripture. So we had a lovely conversation talking about that. But when we take the time to let the Word of God really saturate our souls, then what happens is this then eventually works itself out. When we pray, we come up with this phrase from Psalm, this psalm or that phrase from Scripture, and we cobble those things together to relate to the prayer requests that we have. And if you read through the Psalms a lot, then that's going to impact the way you think. And it's fascinating to read phrases that occur over and over again in the Psalms in slightly different ways, in slightly different contexts, but they they challenge us and that enriches our spiritual life. And so we need to really be uh, students of the Word, and I believe David was that way. I don't, we don't know exactly what he had, what other believers at that time had in terms of the written Word. We know that they had the Torah. We know that they perhaps had some other uh, some other books, but we don't know how much. Remember, David is living only 400 years from the time that that Moses wrote the Torah. And there was much of what we call the Old Testament that was not written yet. But there was so much that was. And of course, uh, he was composing Scripture, Psalms, under the inspiration of God. So our starting point here has been on the Davidic covenant and just understanding the structure of this. Now, you could spend a lot of time just thinking about how this threefold structure applies to your prayer life applies to how you trust the lord how you claim promises so it starts off talking about god's love his chesed love and his faithfulness and praising god for that and that's really the first 18 verses it's what we've we've just about covered all 18 verses and the focal point there is on the character of God it brings in his his righteousness his justice it brings in his faithfulness it brings in so many different attributes his especially his might his power that God is able to do that which he has promised he is able to accomplish it so when we are claiming a promise we know that he can do it because he has that power. He is omnipotent. We look at creation. We look at his miracles in the past. And that's what the psalmist does, is he talks about these historic events that have characterized God's faithfulness. Then in the second part, which we'll begin tonight, uh, we get into God's promise to David, which is the foundation of the psalmist's petition. So this is where he is claiming a promise, and we'll learn more in this section about the Davidic promise than just simply reading the covenant itself. There's more that relates to God's, uh, God's activity and promise. And then at the end, in the last uh, 15 verses or so, there is a petition. He expresses his desire to God to remain faithful to the promises to David in the midst of what appears to be a national crisis now, I know we don't know too much about having a national crisis. Everything's just going along so well here. But perhaps we can learn something from this that affects how we pray. Now, it's a different dispensation. And uh, we don't have a president that or anything like this that is a descendant of David or has a promise to his right to the uh, uh, executive office. We don't have anything like that. We just have uh, the promise of God in many different areas for for stability so we can go to those things and focus on the character of God. So that's the threefold breakdown. Now, I work was working through this text today, and I began to see some some connections that weren't there. And so I'm modifying how I'm breaking this down. So in this section, I'm talking about the chesed and the amunah, the love and the faithfulness of God... We looked at the first four verses which focus on God's covenant loyalty and his faithfulness. Again and again, that is repeated. These words are used in parallelism. And he, the, the writer is uh, reflecting on the fact that God has made a covenant. So he's introducing this idea in verse 3. God is speaking, I have made a covenant with my choice one. Uh, not my chosen. We'll get into that a little later on, because we come into the same word when we get down to down into our passage. I've made a covenant with my choice one. I have sworn to my servant David. I have sworn is parallel to I have made a covenant, and that just a reminder. It is the swearing of an oath that initiates, or is the ground of a covenant, not a sacrifice. Okay, that will come into play as we think about when at some future time studying the new covenant, that when Jesus talks about the new covenant of his blood, the sacrifice, it's not the sacrifice that starts the covenant. It is the swearing of an oath that initiates the covenant. The sacrifice may be the sacrifice for the covenant, but it is not the sacrifice that begins the covenant. And so that really... Uh, uh, really is important for understanding whether or not we're in any form of the kingdom. The kingdom comes because of covenant fulfillment, but if the covenant didn't begin with the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, if it doesn't begin until God swears an oath to Israel in the tribulation period, then we don't have the initiation of the kingdom until Jesus returns the second time. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross doesn't start the kingdom. We're not in an already not yet form of the kingdom. The kingdom is future and we're not there yet. So those are just some little tidbits we pulled out of that. In Psalm 89, 5 through 18, there's a focus on God's character all the way through here. It just resonates with, with his an emphasis on his power the emphasis on uh, his power as exhibited in his creation, his power over the angels, and there's a whole section there from five through down through uh ten that show the role of angels and the background of human history and the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, then starting in verse eleven. There's an emphasis on the sovereignty, the power of God to rule over his, his creation. So as we go through this section, there's the praise of God for his creation, for his uh, faithfulness. And there it's parallel to wonders. In verses 6 through 8, he's prayed for his unique and awesome attributes and then in the third section, 9 through 13, the Lord is praised for his omnipotence and his sovereign rule over creation. Then we get to this fourth division. And I highlighted this because this is where I saw some differences and uh, modified the outline just just a little bit. There is a significant shift that takes place here. Uh, the Lord is the source of joy and happiness for those who walk with him and glory in his righteousness and strength. And that's verses 14 through 18. Now, I'm going to get into this in a little more detail when we get into the review. But I want you to notice in verse 14, there's a shift from his omnipotence. And now we're talking about righteousness and justice as the foundation of his throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. So this is hesed and emmet which is a form of emuna, and it has to do more with security and stability than it does with, uh, translated as faithfulness. It's interesting, yesterday morning, I had to run an errand over, well, actually, what, I, what we did was we went over and walked in the mall over at Memorial City. And so we got done before everything opened up, and as we were pulling out from, uh, from our parking place, I noticed an armored car that was sitting over by the side of the parking lot, and the name of the security firm was Malki Emmet. Immediately I looked at what I said, that's Hebrew. Let's work our way through it. Malki, the king, Melek. Emmet, that's what we're studying. So I did a little searching on some of the nuances of that term. Modern Hebrew will add some other phrases to it. And it had to, and basically what that means is my little uh, translation of it, is this company is called the King of Security. <laughs> and, you know, it's not an Israeli company, but I'm betting that the whoever founded it was Jewish and knew some Hebrew. So I thought, that well, that was just fascinating to see that. But that's the idea here is the emphasis on, on uh, security. Uh, go before your face. Now, if you have a pen in your Bible's there, you ought to underline before your face. And then in the next verse it says, blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. And in the New King James, the next line, the second strophe in verse verse 15 is, they walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. Now, once again, that always—I always have a little pet peeve here because the word here is exactly the same word, same form, identical to what is translated as "face" at the end of verse 14. But in English, we want to jazz things up a little bit and don't want it to look like we're using the same words over and over again when God the Holy Spirit very clearly used the same word over and over again to draw a point. That should be translated, uh, they walk, O Lord, in the light of your faith. And then, and that is, we're going to see what that means. And then at the beginning of verse, verse 16, it says, in your name, which connects to the idea of in your face. They're very similar, but they, they're, they're slightly different because uh, in your name, as we've studied before, focuses on God's character. And the light of your countenance has to do with the revelation of your character. Light often indicates illumination. And so st- eight, 16 starts with in your name, um, they rejoice all day long, and in your righteousness they are exalted, for, and see at the beginning of verse 17 you have the word for, which usually indicates an explanation, maybe it could be translated because it's the same word in the Hebrew, and that tells you that verse 17 is explaining something in addition in relation to the previous verses, and then verse 18 starts with a for also, that connects it to that. So you can't break up the outline in between any of those verses. So 14 through 18 all hang together, and they're talking about God's character being the source of happiness for those who walk with him. And so there's an element of this. It's clearly talking about an intimate fellowship with God. And it's not just talking about uh, seeing God face-to-face because we don't, even Jacob When he is at Peniel and wrestles with the angel of the Lord, and he's called the place Peniel, which means that he saw God face to face, he really didn't see God face to face. It is an idiom for I was in the presence of God. So all of that is part of our understanding. Now, we've looked at the faith rest drill as claiming a promise, then thinking through the promise to see the doctrinal rationales. What's the logic structure behind the promise? How is it structured? And we come to understand those rationales. And this is a rationale that is related to the essence of God. Thinking through God's essence and applying it to with prom in relation to promises to a situation and then coming to conclusions. That's part of what happens at the end when he's making his petition. Now, another aspect of this is that it gives us a foundation for prayer. It starts with praise for who God is. When we pray, we need to take time praising God. And when I have set up an acronym for the different parts of prayer. I refer to it as CAT, C for confession, A for adoration. This is adoration. We're focusing on who God is, just taking the time to reflect upon the attributes of God and how they relate to our circumstances. If it's a prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer of praise, then how do those attributes, how did they come into play during the answer to prayer? If we are petitioning God to intervene in a set of circumstances in a person's life and something like that, then we are looking at God's character in terms of His ability to resolve the problem and resolve the situation. So, we praise God for who He is and to think through that. And one of the exercises you can do when you're reading through your Bible and you're reading through the Psalms is to make notes, have a have a notebook. I've never been one big on journaling, but I usually just jot down notes in the margins of my Bible. And notice the progression that you find in different Psalms and in some verses relating to the character of God. What are these... Essence? Now, we break the essence box down into about ten attributes, but there you can categorize these words in terms of those ten attributes so you come to understand wh- what the writer is doing. As we think through the essence of God then, as this author has, starting in verse 5 going all the way down through through verse 18... What he's doing is building a case. Now, he hasn't gotten to the core of the case yet, but he's laying the foundation for his case, his petition that will come at the end. The first part of the case that he's laying down is God's character, that God's faithful. He's faithful to his word. He's faithful to his promise. He's able to fulfill it. He has the power, the omnipotence, the might uh, to do this. He has done this in different ways. He says uh, back in verse 8, O Lord God of hosts who is mighty like you O Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. There he correlates God's omnipotence, his might with God's faithfulness. Those are tied together whereas in the first verse he connected mercies uh, with, with faithfulness. And he gives examples that God of, of God intervening in events and bringing about a victory. So as we think through the essence of God, then we can mentally relate that or those attributes to the promise that we are claiming. And then in the third step, from that foundation, then we frame our request or our petition, which is what happens in the last part of the psalm from uh, verse thirty eight down through verse verse fifty two so that takes us through in a special way now let 's look back at the text. I want to go back a couple of verses. The north and the south you have created them Tavor and Hermon rejoice in your name now it 's important to notice here that you have a a paral- there 's always parallelism in in the language the What usually happens is you have a statement. And this is more emblematic parallelism. It's not totally uh, uh, totally uh, synonymous. Some, pe- some writers will call it a synthetic parallelism. I think they're pretty close. What you have is a statement, the north and the south, and then it says, you've created them. Barah is the word there translated create. Only God creates Barah. Barah does not inherently mean ex nihilo creation. But it always describes something that only God can do. So the north and the south, you've created them. And then Tavor and Hermon rejoice in your name. Now rejoice in your name is not parallel to have created them, but it expands on the idea. So if north and south is A, then you have A, and then the second statement is B, the third statement is a prime it is parallel to north and south and then rejoice in your name is the conclusion it's C okay so that's how it's how it's structured and the point of it is to drive us from God's creation to the joy that it ha- it produces and rejoicing over God's creation and its significance now, one of the reasons I say the north and south and Tabor and Hermon are parallel to each other is when you look at Galilee. Here's a map of the north of Italy and Galilee. I mean, the north of Israel and Galilee. And if you are in Galilee, Tavor is roughly in the south, and and Mount Hermon is in the north. And so everything in between. It's it's talk. It gives the boundaries south and north, and everything in between has been created by God. This is the land God has created for Israel. And so we are to rejoice in it. Now, this land is the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This land is the land that the David and the Davidic king will rule over. So we can rejoice over God's provision of this land for us. And I pointed out, uh, last time that we have Mount uh, Tavor, and I have a picture here it 's an odd shaped mountain. You can always uh find it and you can always um, you can always uh picture it whenever you're on in the Esdralon valley it 's just this funny looking little bump out there and it's it's some writers will talk about the fact that these are the most significant mountains, obviously written by somebody who has has never actually uh, actually been there uh, Mount Tavor actually isn 't isn 't that high it's it 's relatively short it 's only about seventeen hundred feet above sea level whereas Hermon is like nine nine thousand feet above sea level and you can see the difference as we see the snow capped peaks over here of of uh, Mount Hermon. But it's their geographical reference. They bound the northern part of the promised land. So those are the parallels. And it's just a reminder of the essence of God taking us through his His attributes and his power to to create this land and his power to give this land to the Davidic king. Now, the other thing I want to point out here is as we transition then into the uh, especially verse 14, we see the emphasis on his righteousness and his justice and his love and his truth. Truth is uh, his veracity. So we see those elements emphasized. But we also see his omnipotence emphasized in Psalm eighty-nine thirteen. Whenever we have phrases like arm and hand related to God, that's an anthropomorphism related to the power of God. Nothing is more powerful than God. And that brought us down to verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. And the idea there is that which undergirds and gives stability to God's rule. Throne is a figure of speech standing for God's rule. Just as we might talk about some announcement that came from the White House today. The White House stands for the administration of the executive branch of the country, the administration of the president. So when we read uh, read this about the throne, that's talking about the administration of God's rule, his sovereignty over his creation. So righteousness and justice. Now, we have to understand these terms. I was really amazed as I was studying through this and looking at how different translations handled the second line, the before your face line, how many translations retranslated tzedek? Instead of righteousness, there was a wide range of what I thought were some some inappropriate words that were used. Tzedek is a primary key word throughout the Old Testament referring to God's righteousness. And to add some of the Phrases that were seen in some of the uh, uh, parallel texts was uh, I, th- I thought was just inappropriate. For example, the NET Bible in Psalm eighty-nine fourteen translates it equity. That sounds a little too social justicey for me. <laughs> equity it doesn't have anything to do with equity. Righteousness is the standard of God's character. It is it is that by which all things are evaluated. It is that which is right, that which is absolute. So it's the standard of God's character. And the Hebrew word for justice is mishpat, which is the application of that standard to the situations of life, the situations that occur under God's rule. So the foundation of his throne, that which gives it stability, are his righteousness, his standards, and the application of those standards to what he rules. And then in the second line it says, uh, mercy and truth, mercy is chesed, his faithful, loyal love, and truth is emet, go before your face. So this, what does it mean, go before your face? Now last time I said, this is what goes forth from the throne. But I want to refine that just a little bit. Uh, On this slide, it's a little smaller, but I wanted to get all five of these verses on this slide. I highlighted some, changed the color, so that you would see some of the uh, parallelism that's here. The term righteousness, ascetic, is used in verse 14, and it's used again in verse 16. In verse 14... You have the word "panet," which is the word for face. When Jacob was at um, at Bethel, near Bethel, not Bethel, when he was on the, across the Jordan in the Transjordan, and he's he's sleeping, and he has the uh, and the theophany of the angel of the Lord comes, and he wrestles with the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord slaps him on the hip, and so he has a limp after that. Uh, he names the place Peniel, Pen, pene is for the word for face. So what he's meaning is he saw the face of God there, the presence of God. Uh, this word, this imagery of face is an imagery of the presence of God usually. So... Um, what this is talking about in verse 14 righteousness and justice are the foundation that's the stability that secures the bedrock of the of God's rule and then mercy and truth go before your face mercy and truth characterize your presence so that's that's a much stronger way of talking about what I what I said last last time and then in the next verse in New King James, in most translations, they change the, the word face to something like countenance, which is, I don't know why they do that. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. They walk in the light of your presence. Now, is that talking about getting saved, or is that talking about how you live after you're saved? That's talking about how you live after you're saved. So this is clearly talking about a, a sanctification or a spiritual life uh, thing that when we walk with the Lord, the walking with the Lord there has to fit within the way this metaphor is used all the way through Scripture. And, oh, I've got to show this to you. I didn't get it slipped into the slide, but I'm going to uh, show it to you because uh, Barb was asking me to find some pictures for to put on the grease brochure And I ran across this one. Can anybody read that? John? (laughs) Metaphor. Metaphor. Transportation. That's modern Greek on this truck. Metaphor. What does a metaphor do? It transports meaning from one object to an unlike object. That's what a metaphor does. And so the spiritual life is pictured through this metaphor of... of, There we go. Through this metaphor of walking. Walking, we take each day step by step. If you try to take two steps at the same time, you're going to trip and fall down. You take your step, and it's just talking about the progression of life. And so whenever we read the word walking in Scripture... It is a metaphor for the spiritual life, that we go through it step by step. And so we look at the first verse, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your rule. That's, that their throne is put for rules, so that's another form of of, uh, of a figure of speech, word substitution, a metonymy of the, uh, would be the metonymy for the source, for the action, for the foundation of your throne, mercy and truth go before your face. So because God rules on the basis of His righteousness, justice, loyal love and truth, the people who are walking with Him are blessed. Now this is an interesting word. It's the word Ashre, which has the idea of, of more of happiness than, than blessing per se, which is the Hebrew word bracha. Okay, so it's not bracha here. It is asherah, which has the idea more of, of experiencing the blessing of God, so that brings joy into the life. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. What's the joyful sound? Well, sometimes this word is used for the blast of the trumpet to warn of the attack of enemies. It's the blast of the trumpet used to give uh, bugle calls in the middle of uh, battle so that the troops know what to do. But it's also used positively to relate to the blast of the trumpet calling the people to worship on the feast days. And what do they do? They begin by singing psalms as they are ascending the temple mount. And there's a number of psalms that are called ascent psalms. These were the psalms that were sung by the by the worshipers as they're coming to the temple to worship God so the people who know the joyful sound these are people who have a intimate have an intimate relationship with God they're going to the temple they're going through the rituals they're applying the law and they hear the sound of the trumpet and they realize that all of this is due to God's blessing on Israel his pro- promises that they're unmerited and that they are given to them and so they are blessed. They walk. They are living out the spiritual life in the Old Testament in the light of God's faith. We could rephrase this just a little bit. Light always speaks, well, it speaks of two things in Scripture. God is light. It has the idea, on the one hand, of purity. In him there is no darkness at all, okay? It mentions more purity. But it also frequently used of of illumination we walk in the light of God's word and so the idea here is the light of God's face is his presence we don't ever see the presence of God even Moses didn't truly see God face to face but it's an idiom for ha- the presence of God where do we find the presence of God we find the presence of God in his word when we study his word then we learn about who God is, what he has done for us, what he's providing for us, and what his promises are for us. And so when we walk in the light of your face, we're walking in the illumination of your character, your person, who you are, your presence. And then that makes a natural progression to verse 16, in your name, and we've seen that that phrase often refers to character, of who a person is in his essence. So in your essence, they rejoice all the day long. We rejoice in God's character, his righteousness, his justice, his mercy, and his truth. They rejoice all day long. And in your righteousness, which is a more precise way of talking about it, the the aspect of character they're talking about, in your righteousness, they are exalted. Now, when we look often in the parallelism that you have, the first line is a little more general. The second line, a little more specific. So the second line, it's not just in your essence. It's specifically talking about God's righteousness. That's the foundation of his throne. They are exalted, so they have joy there. And then he's going to explain it in verses 17 and 18 with the beginning of the Hebrew preposition is just a key. It's a letter K, K K-I, and it means uh, to give an explanation the idea of cause Uh, it's comparable to the greek word gar in the new testament it's explaining why something has been said why do they exalt in god's righteousness why do they rejoice in the essence of god because god is the glory of their strength once again we're bringing in the idea of omnipotence it's not their power it's god's power that that they're glorying in, that's what they want to boast about, is what God has done for them, not what they've done for themselves, and that what God's provision of His strength is His favor, His goodness, His unmerited uh, favor. Favor in your mer- in your favor, our horn is exalted. So the idea here, let's break out the parallelism, glorying in something is exalting in it. So those two words are parallel. Uh, For you are the glory of their strength. That's parallel to horn. The horn of an animal was used to depict their, their strength or their power. And so both stanzas in verse 17 are talking about the fact that it is God who is the source of their power and their strength. That's the one in whom they are exalting. And he He freely gives it to them as part of his favor. That is often used, a word that is often used in relation to God's uh, blessing in those kinds of contexts. And then the second reason that he states is in verse 18, for, secondly, because our shield belongs to the Lord and our king to the Holy One of Israel. And again, we have synonymous parallelism that helps us understand the passage. Our our shield belongs to the Lord. Actually, I have a better slide for this. Come on. Am I there? Yeah. Okay. 16, 17. Here we go. Our shield belongs to the Lord and our King to the Holy One of Israel. Now the word for holy one here, and the reason I point this out is because you're going to see holy show up again in verse 19. But there uh it is uh Hasid. It's related to Hesed. Hasid, we talk about the Hasidim today, the Hasidic Jews, it's talking about the pious or the righteous or the morally pure. That that's the idea of Hesed. So it's translated as holy in the New King James Version. In verse um, verse 19, then you spoke in a vision to your Holy One. But that's a totally different word. It's not kadosh here, which is talking about God as the holy God, the one who is set apart, unique, distinct, as the creator God of the universe. So it's, we read it as for our shield, our magin, belongs to Yahweh and our king to the Holy One of Israel. Now you lose, because of the way they structured this in the English, you lose the, the parallelism that's really there in the in the Hebrew. And that's why I put this down here at the bottom. For to the Lord belongs. There's not a word for belong there that's left out. It's, an, it's implied. For to the Lord is our shield or belongs our shield. So Yahweh is our shield. He's the one who protects us. He's the one who defends us. For to the Lord belongs our shield and to the Holy One of Israel. So Holy One of Israel is synonymous with Lord and our king is synonymous to shield. How does God protect the nation? Through a godly ruler, through the rulers who are to serve as ministers of righteousness. And under the Davidic covenant, the Davidic king was given to Israel, to rule over Israel, to protect Israel. And that was not occurring at this time. There was some sort of problem. And uh, I think that I identify it as during the reign of King Rehoboam because he was a spiritual failure initially. But later, after the invasion of King Shishak, he is going to humble himself before the Lord because God disciplined him. Now, this passage, as I pointed out, I don't think this is beca- written... Because of the threat of Shishak, I think it's written because of the threat of the foolishness of of Rehoboam, that because he was young and foolish, he did not respond appropriately to the request of the ten northern tribes to reduce their taxes. He listened to uh, his young men on his uh, on his council that wanted him to increase their ta- t- the taxes and increase the burdens on the ten northern tribes, and that created a tax revolt, and the ten tribes split off split off from the south. And so this threatens the unity of the nation and consequently threatens the uh, survival of the Davidic king. And we went through that when I started the this whole thing. So uh, what he talks about here is that the king, the Davidic king should be the one who protects the nation and that 's not happening right now, in fact, it looks like the nation's going to may be destroyed, and that 's what was happening during the uh, next several rulers. Now, all of the rulers of Israel uh, following um, following Solomon were some were godly, some were not, some were said to be evil now it 's really interesting we use the word evil in different ways, but if you trace through the use of the word evil in First Kings and Second Kings, it primarily describes someone who has given themselves over to idolatry. Solomon gave himself over to idolatry. He did that which was evil. And you had others. You had Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who is the first ruler who leads the, uh, leads the revolt against the southern kingdom, the tax revolt. And he sets up two idols and two worship centers, one in the north. Uh, near um, uh, what is that near near uh, uh from Be- uh, where am i where am i what am I losing that word john um, in the north D- Dan simple word from dan to Beersheba. okay so he sets up a temple there and they worship it and you can go there now and it 's a fascinating sight and then you can go south to Bethel and that 's where he set up the second idol and so Every king in the north after that says the same thing, for they did what was evil in the sight of God, and followed in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat over and over and over and over and over, and they and David, David committed a lot of sins, and there are a lot of Christians who would condemn David if, except God doesn't do that, God never accuses David of evil. Oh, David committed adultery. David conspired to have Bathsheba's uh, husband killed. David numbered the people, and it caused a great divine discipline. Apparently, he's tempted by Satan to do that. He didn't know it. He disobeys God, but he does all this. But God never says he's evil. He sins, but it's not evil. Evil is when you're dis- disloyal to God in a in a in a sense where you are no longer worshiping God. David was a man after God's own heart. He sinned. We can be the same way. We can be loyal to God. We're still sinned because we're sinners. We're not going to avoid that. We're still going to sin. But David is never called evil. But there are some in his lineage that are called evil because they succumb to the sins of Ahab in the north. And like Ahaz was also an idolater. So this was a major major problem. So our shield belongs to the Lord and our king to the Holy One. This is stating an ideal, that the king of Israel should be God, the, the one that God has given them to protect him. So that brings us to the last, or to the next part, which is God's promise to David as the foundation of the psalmist's petition in Psalm eighty-nine, nineteen to 37. And then, of course, the third part is going to be the petition to God to remain faithful to his promises to David. So just as an introduction, what we'll see here is a listing, basically, of the things God promised David, that he chose David to be his anointed king in verses 19 and 20, that he promised, that God promised an intimate relationship with himself through an eternal covenant, verses 26 to 29. And it's interesting the things that are listed there that are not in 2 Samuel 7. And then, fourth, God God's promises would never be canceled, though they would be hindered by sin and disobedience. And one thing I want to bring out before we I wrap it up tonight, and we won't get into the next verse, but what's important to think about is why did God give this promise to David? Why did God give the covenant to David? In the text, as we'll see, it calls David a choice one. Not It shouldn't be translated choice in one. It's a, a participle, but a participle is often used as a noun. And it he is the choice one. What makes him choice is the fact that he was a man after God's own heart. The Abrahamic covenant is classified as a type called a royal grant treaty in the, in the Old Testament. A royal grant treaty is a special, gracious, beneficial treaty that often a king who is, let's say, an emperor, and he's conquered some different uh, regions, tribes, countries, and they are serving him. Now, they have certain requirements that they must perform as the suzerains to or excuse me, as the vassals to his rulership. And if they do well, then he may reward them with something special. Now, Abraham, as we have studied many, many times, was saved before Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, according to the tenses in Genesis 15, 6. Abraham had already believed in God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. He was a faithful, loyal servant. Everywhere he went, he's setting up an altar, calling upon the name of the Lord. And as a reward, God graciously gives him this covenant, this Abrahamic covenant. It is an aspect of grace. The same thing is true with David. David has been faithful to God, and at near the end of his reign, God gives him a covenant. We know it's a royal grant covenant because the royal grant covenant Treaty of De- of Abraham promised three things. What were they? You need to say this in your sleep: land, seed, and blessing. Right? The seed refers to David. It's going to be expanded in the Davidic covenant. So, if the Abrahamic covenant is a royal grant covenant, then the Davidic covenant has to be a royal grant covenant. It's not a suzerain vassal covenant like the Mosaic law. So it's a, it is a reward for, God, for David's faithful service and for his loyalty, which tells us that, as I've taught in Ephesians, when we were going through the idea of election, that this idea of, of choice has to do with selecting those who are meet a qualification. We went to Matthew chapter 20, and we looked at those invited to the wedding feast. At the end of that uh, parable, Jesus says this phrase you hear everybody quote, as mistranslated. Many are called, but few are chosen. But nobody in the whole th- in, in, nobody in the parable is cho- no, nobody chooses the people who are coming to the banquet. The people who are coming to the banquet choose to go to the banquet. The invitation goes out to all. And there are many who just throw it away and they don't want to go. The that then there's some who go. And there's one who shows up and he's got the wrong clothes on. The others are choice because they have the right clothes on. Choice means they have a quality about them that brings them, uh, makes them qualified to be at the banquet. As I've been reading through the Old Testament, I need to go through and make a list of all of these. There's so many places where you have this word translated as chosen related to, like, for example, David's mighty men were chosen. And that word is often used to refer to unconditional election. But they're choice men. David didn't just go, I'm going to take you, but not you. And I'm going to take you, but not you. I'm going to take you, you, and you, but not you. He didn't do that. They had to be qualified to be in his elite core. And what's the qualification when we transfer that to the spiritual element? Well, we transfer to the spiritual element, that qualification is possessing the righteousness of Christ, and we don't earn it or deserve it. it God gives it to us when we trust in Christ as Savior. In John 3, 18, we're told that, that he who does not believe in the name of the Son of God is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. He doesn't have righteousness. But when we trust in Christ, we have his righteousness that qualifies us, that makes us choice, It's not an act where God is choosing who will be saved and who will not be saved. When this is applied in the Old Testament, that act of choosing is based on a qualification. David, Abraham, this choice comes from the fact that they're qualified and that they've believed in the gospel, they've been given righteousness, and they've served God faithfully. It's not a choice for salvation. It is a choice for service in a special way. We'll come back and begin with verse 19 next week. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to uh, come to a greater appreciation of your character and the importance of that walk with you, walking in the light of your countenance, walking in the light of your word, as we've heard many, many times in Scripture, and your countenance is just a, a figure of speech to relate to the way you have revealed yourself to us and that personal face-to-face relationship we can have with you through your word. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and that we might be uh, driven to be in your word more and to let your word transform our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.